If you have your Bible, please uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 11 and 12. We're going to begin reading at the end of chapter 11 and continuing to chapter 12 this morning. This is our sermon text. Uh, We've been working through Mark for a little while. Uh, Last week we saw uh, Jesus, when he entered the uh, city of Jerusalem for the last time, he did some things that were very provocative. He, He went to the temple and he took charge as if he were in control. And he even uh, told a parable to show what he was doing when he cursed the fig tree. Uh, He was saying that he was the owner of God's people and that when they don't yield the fruit uh, that God is looking for, he has the right to cast them out and to curse them. That was an amazing claim to make. And this week we're going to see some challenges that arose from the leaders that were then against Jesus. And it's going to give us a chance to think about his authority together. So let's look beginning with verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Have you ever asked any of these questions before? How dare you? Have you ever said that to somebody? How dare you? Who died and made you king? Have you ever said that? What gives you the right? Have you ever said any of those three questions, right? Those are common questions. 
they have a whole lot in common actually with the questions that the religious leaders asked Jesus there in verse 28. They are questions that are not necessarily seeking an answer, are they? They're what we call rhetorical questions, meaning you ask it to make a point, not to get an answer. Uh, so when you say, how dare you, you, you really aren't wanting them to like list out the reasons why they dared so that you can say, oh, okay, never mind, my bad, go ahead. You're saying that because actually instead of asking a question, you're accusing them, veiling it in a question. Same thing with these leaders. They, they are accusing Jesus of grabbing an authority that did not belong to him when he cleansed the temple. And yet I want you to notice Jesus in response does not say, hey guys, you're right, I shouldn't have done it, no big deal. No, instead he doubles down and says, no, I have an authority greater than any authority, greater than yours, greater than kings, greater than anybody's because it came from heaven. And it's your responsibility to come and respect it. To come and bow down, as it says in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That's what we want to talk about today. Jesus is Lord. He's not just Savior, he's Lord. He's both of those together. And because he's Lord, he is worthy of all our respect. He's worthy of all our reverence. And there are actually great consequences if we don't come and bow. So take a look at your bulletin. There are three things about the authority of Jesus that this story tells us. Uh, it's a rightful authority, it's a triumphant authority, and it's a gracious authority. Let's look together at the, th the authority of Jesus and why we should respect it. First of all, he has a rightful authority, an authority that comes not from men but from God. The authority of Jesus is because of who he is. Uh, that's not true of men and women who have authority in society. Um, when a king or a, when, a, um, when a president is elected or when you have authority given to you in some place in your work or business, it's not because of who you are that you have that authority. It's because that authority has been placed in your hands in some legitimate way, right? Some, some uh, leader of the company has invested you with it. The whole company has invested you with it. Uh, the whole nation has voted you into office. Uh, human authority is always derived authority derived from outside of ourselves and then stewarded by us on trust. Jesus is saying, I have an authority that's not derived at all. This is an authority that comes from me because I am the son of God, God's very beloved son, as he describes himself in the, in the story of the tenants, who has been sent from heaven down to earth to reign over the world for a specific purpose. Therefore, my authority is rightful. And you, chief priests, scribes, and elders, you may think you have authority, and you, you actually do have some because God gave it to you, yet your authority does not trump mine. In fact, it's quite the opposite. My authority trumps yours. And so Jesus, when he responds to their veiled accusations, which are veiled in the form of questions, how dare you, who died and made you king, Jesus, in verse 29 and 30, turns the question back on them so that they will have to deal with the most fundamental question of all. He says simply this. Think about John the Baptist, all right? John the Baptist has just had a huge impact on the nation. He was uh, the great revival preacher. Everybody came to him. Everybody got baptized by him. And, you know, he was the talk of the town. Where did he come from? 
where was his message from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's trying to get them to see. They're accusing him of grasping an authority that's not his. And yet he wants them to see they are the ones that have been grasping at authority that's not theirs. Because the ultimate question when it comes to authority is always heaven or man. In fact, I want to tell you all, that's the basic question with every single thing in your whole life. The question of life is heaven or man. Heaven, by the way, just means God. God or man? Are you following God or yourself? Are you following God or other people? Are you worshiping and serving God? Or are you worshiping and serving created things in his place? What the Bible calls idols. Heaven or man? That's the fundamental question. It's a binary question, which means you can't have it both ways. It can only be one or the other. Binary. Two things. Kind of like when you flip on a light switch. It's either on or off. Meaning electricity is either going to the light or it's not. Now, I know there are such things as, as dimmers, okay? Don't, don't call me out on that. I know there's dimmer switches. But even with a dimmer switch, it's on or it's off, right? I mean, there's either some light coming to the thing or there's not any light. And Jesus says heaven or man is that kind of choice. It's either from God, from his authority, from his vantage point as creator, or it's something that we have derived ourselves if it's from God, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's worth giving your life for. If it's from man, it's not so much. Do you see how Jesus is all, I mean, he does this all the time. He's doing it here for the leaders and for those who are in earshot of them because they're also listening in thinking, okay, what do we need to do? Just like we this morning are kind of listening in. Well, what do we need to do about this? Because Every single one of us has a tendency like these leaders to put some other question besides that question in the central place of our hearts. We've got some other question besides heaven or man driving us most of the time. I mean, just think about it. We're all guilty of it. Even Peter was guilty of it. In, in uh, Mark chapter 8, we talked about this several weeks ago. Remember, uh, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go get crucified, boys. And Peter was like, never, you, you should never get killed, Jesus. We will never stand for it. Remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. Okay, we remember that part. What's he say next? We tend to forget the next part. He says, Peter, I'm calling you Satan right now because you are not minding the things of God. Instead, you're minding the things of man. Peter, you're obsessed with earth and the things of human wisdom and invention and philosophy and all the rest. You're not obsessed and zealous for the things of heaven. And that's why you've got it all wrong, Peter. That's why you're the same at the, at the base uh, of, of what you're doing. You're the same as Satan. Because he also is the master of obsessing over his own stuff instead of God's stuff. We're all guilty of this. I mean, just to put yourself to a test, think about it this way. When you make major decisions in life, what questions do you ask before you make those decisions? What questions do you ask? I'll tell you some of the ones I ask. Will I be happy? 
what will people think? Can you relate to any of these? Will I be successful? Will it work? Will I be comfortable? Will it be easy? Or will it be hard? Because I don't want to do it. If it's hard, if it's easy, okay. Can you relate? These are the questions that tend to drive us, isn't it? But if you think about every one of those questions, none of them contain this question. What does heaven say? What does God want? What does God say? Well, what, what do his commandments and his word have to tell me about this particular crossroads that I'm at, this decision I have to make? Instead, it's just an obsession, a zeal for what's our own interests rather than a zeal for God's interests. And Jesus is telling the leaders, you are about to be kicked out of my vineyard because you have lived your life obsessed with those things rather than learning how for me to be obsessed with the Heavenly Father. That's some sharp words. You can see why. You can already begin to see why in verse 12 it says, of chapter 12, it says they walked away wanting to arrest Jesus. They wanted to arrest him. You kind of understand. Because he's going for the jugular. You fancy yourselves religious people. You fancy yourselves religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees. And yet I know your heart. You don't care one bit about God's ways. In fact, it tells us that when Jesus puts that question, was John the Baptist from heaven or from man, they can't even answer him. With a straight answer. I mean, isn't that weird? They can't even say what they really think. Why? It tells you. Because they were afraid of people. I mean, we all know what they thought about John the Baptist. Why couldn't they just say, Jesus, you know what? We thought John the Baptist was full of it. Because that's what they thought. He's from man, just a man doing man things, nothing about God. But they, wouldn't, they would not say it because to them, their position over people and their reputation with people meant more than the truth. It just simply meant more to them than what does heaven say and what is the truth in this matter that I might find it and bow to it. And y'all, we have that tendency. We think that it's innocent when we go through our lives thinking only of ourselves. We think it's innocent. But from God's perspective, if I could just get you to see God's perspective, it is not an innocent thing. It's treachery. Because his authority is rightful. Do you notice how in the word authority there is the word author? That ain't by accident. Take a look at down. You, know, you see that word authority? Underline the word author in it. And remember always, he who authors something has the authority over it. Or to put it a different way, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, God made us. He invented man as a man invents an engine. A car was made to run on gas, and it won't run properly on anything else. And God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits that we were designed to burn, the food that we were designed to feed on. There is no other. Now listen to this. 
This is again C.S. Lewis. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering with religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. The author authored us to run on him. If we try to run on anything else, it doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if you choose cocaine or family. At the end of the day, you can't run on it. Now, it's better to choose family than cocaine. I grant you that. But in a spiritual way, it is not better. In God's judgment, it's not that much better because you need God. Heaven or man? That's the question. Secondly, I want you to see how the authority of Jesus is triumphant. And this is so important because this, this has the ability to sober us a little bit even more this morning. Not only were we made to run on God and only can we run on him, but also we were made to be judged by God. And make no mistake about it. The reign of Jesus Christ began in humility and it began in lowliness. But it did not end up in humility and lowliness, nor will it. That's why Jesus tells the story in chapter 12 of the tenants. All right, a man went and planted a vineyard, he said. Imagine this, a man plants a vineyard, a landowner. Now let me, let me hear you, who's the landowner in the story? God, right? This is an allegory or a parable. God is the landowner. He owns everything. He's the author. He, he owns every piece of land in all the world. The story about the vineyard is about his church, his people, his special chosen people. God has built the vineyard in the midst of the world. He put a fence around it to protect it. He dug a pit so that its fruitfulness might become wine to fill the world with joy. He put a tower on it so that he could watch over his people from on high. Right? All these things God is doing to bless his people. And yet, verse 2, when God comes to what he made and he finds no fruit for himself there. Because the tenants were evilly trying to keep back the fruit for themselves. What does God do? Well, at first he does the humble, lowly thing. He sends another servant and another servant, and another servant. And each one, they treat him worse and worse, right? The first one, they sent away empty-handed and beat him. The second one, they hit him on the head. The third, they killed. And then many others, they beat and killed. And then finally, it says he had one guy left. Now think about this story. I love this story because about halfway through, it stops making sense, Right? I mean, clearly no man would ever do this. If you owned land and sent a servant to go pick the fruit and the guys who were there beat them up and sent them back empty-handed, what would you do next? Grady Judd, right? <laughs> or whatever, you know. You, you, would, you would be furious. You certainly wouldn't send another servant. Even if you did, you wouldn't send another one and another one. And then if, I mean, think about it. There's almost a little bit of dark humor in it. He has no servants left. All he has left is his son. And what does he do? Sends him. 
What an incredible act of humility and mercy. Make no mistake about it, what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about how he sent prophets and prophets and prophets and all of them from Samuel all the way to John the Baptist, they mistreated and killed. And finally, at the end of days, he sent his son. And him they killed too. And yet, look at the end of the story. Jesus doesn't stay dead. And he doesn't stay humble and lowly. What happens? Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Hmm? He will come and destroy the tenants. Judgment. Listen, when it comes to Jesus, we are so quick to think about the cross, which is good, we should, and the resurrection, good, we should, but we forget what happens next in the story sometimes, and we need to remember it this morning when it comes to the authority of Jesus, because after he rose from the dead, what did he do? Sunday school answers welcome, right? He ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, think about it. Jesus came in humility, but he did not end in humility. He ended in exaltation. Jesus rose and God placed him in authority over every place and every king and every name that is named in all the universe. That's where Jesus is right now. And he's coming again. And he's going to hold people accountable for what they did with what God gave them. That's why the people are described as tenants. A tenant is different than an owner. Right? Fundamentally different. The owner owns, the tenant rents. We are renters. You got a lot of money this morning? Congratulations. You're a renter of that money. You got a lot of time? Congratulations. You're a renter of that time. You got breath? Congratulations. You're renting oxygen from the Lord God every day of your life. It's his. He gave it to you. Therefore, he's going to come, the great king, the one who's exalted, and he's going to hold us all accountable. The triumphant authority of Jesus. He will destroy those tenants who did not do well with what God gave them. In particular, this story is about how leaders in the church are going to be held accountable because that's who he's talking about here, right? He's talking about chief priests, elders, and uh, scribes who did not lead God's people the way God called them to. There's going to be a special level of judgment for us who are church leaders who don't do what we're supposed to do. That's sobering. I think also comforting to anybody here who... Maybe one of your hang-ups about Jesus is, man, the church is so messed up. There's so many bad leaders in the church. I want to tell you, there's a leader above those leaders. And when we tell you to join the church and become a part of the church, we're we're not asking you to bow to us. How dare we? We're asking you to bow to him. And yeah, we do bad things, and, and we will be held accountable. Hopefully on earth, but also definitely in heaven. Jesus is talking about this. I mean, this is real deal here. Jesus will come back on a white horse, (laughs) Revelation. And the sword of his mouth, this is all kind of symbolism, right? The sword of his mouth will destroy every enemy out of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me ask you this question. 
Imagine yourself being one of those scribes, one of those chief priests and elders sitting there, standing there, as Jesus is telling this story. Now describe how you feel. You're already afraid of the people. You're terrified of them because, you know, if they start rioting, you're going to lose your position. How do you feel? Angry? How about just super uncomfortable? Now let me ask you this. Very personal question. You don't have to answer out loud. When you hear of the coming of Jesus Christ to judge the world, living and the dead, and you hear about Jesus wiping out the enemies of God in the end, how do you feel? Angry? Offended? Really uncomfortable? Or glad. Because you know who in this story, as they heard this story, felt glad? Anybody in the crowd feel good about the story? Who do you think it was? The people who had been robbed of a relationship with God because of the abuse of these leaders. I'm sure they loved the story. And so one of the great tests this morning, I think, of each of us as to where we are with the Lord, and I I don't just mean whether you're saved or unsaved. I mean, are you walking in a good relationship, a healthy relationship with God? I'm talking about more than just being saved. I'm talking about a real daily healthy relationship. One good test is when you hear of God's future judgment, you think, Lord, first of all, thank you for saving me from it. Second of all, go do it. Come again and do it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is filled with pain. Come end it, right? If you're not walking in a good relationship with God, you're thinking, oh, don't step on my toes. Don't don't be coming back. I've got other things I want to do my way. And how could you be so how could you be so angry, God? Think about it. It's worth thinking about. Which leads us to our last thing. Jesus' authority is also a gracious authority. I said, okay, that the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees were angry, uncomfortable, all that stuff. But there were those in the crowd who heard this story who had to be absolutely excited. Because in the story, there's not just the message of judgment against those who don't recognize Jesus' authority. There's also a clear offer of grace to those who will recognize Jesus' authority. Notice again verse 9 of chapter 12. Look at verse 9. Everybody look at it. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. Is that where it stops? Ah, praise God, it doesn't stop there, right? Because were it to stop there, I think we could all pack up and go home and brace ourselves for destruction. 
Literally, I think every single one of us should pack up, go home, embrace ourselves for the inevitable destruction coming. But the sentence does not end there. That's why we're here. It's the gospel in those last words, right? What does it say? He will give the vineyard to others. All right? Uh, God will still have a vineyard. It doesn't matter who has been unfaithful within the history of the church, God will still have a church that belongs to him by grace. God will still have a people called by his name and brought into the kingdom by his grace. He will still have people to whom he will entrust all his wealth and all his riches forever. Praise God. Now, who are those people? Jesus uses Psalm 110 to describe them. The people who are happy when they hear this story. Psalm 118, of course, was a big thing. We've talked about it the past few weeks in a row because back in chapter 11, when Jesus first came into Jerusalem, they were singing, the kids and the crowds were singing Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They were singing that. And that song has just continued to play like a melody in the background. And here Jesus brings it back out again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Who is the hour there? Those are the same people to whom God will give his vineyard by grace. The hour. Those who look at the work of God through Jesus Christ and marvel who are amazed by it. Those who take Jesus, and though the world has rejected Jesus, they take him and make him the cornerstone of everything they think, say, and do. God bestows upon the humble poor who believe the riches of his grace and sends out the the proud and the arrogant. That's what it's saying. Now, I don't know if you like this, but I I really don't like putting things together. Like Ikea furniture, for example. Do you like that? I don't. I mean, maybe you do. My wife does. But I don't like it. Uh, When it says some assembly required, I don't want to buy it. I often make similar mistakes every time I try to put it together. And, And one of my main mistakes is I don't read the instructions. That's kind of where it all starts to go wrong. And with Ikea in particular, it's because they only have pictures. Like, who does that? There's no words. And the pictures are written in Swedish, as someone said uh, earlier from last service. (laughs) And it's kind of true, right? The pictures don't always look exactly the way the actual items look. And so usually I just start trying to put it together, like just with my own thoughts. And nearly always, I'm ashamed to admit, about halfway through or maybe even all the way through, I realized, hmm, something's either backwards or upside down or something's missing. Uh, I, I've, I've done this where I've gotten to the, all the way to the end and I look down and see, whoa, whoa, there's some pieces that are still on the floor in a bag. <laughs> Have you ever done that? I didn't even think to use those pieces and they, uh, they're probably pretty important. Now, now listen, what do I have to do if, I, if I've got a bunch of pieces on the ground and I've already finished it, what do I need to do to make it right? What? Call Stacy? Is that what you said? <laughs> S- 
Stacy, yeah, that's probably partly what I would do, but what should I do? Or what would Stacy do if she came to help me? Take it apart, start over, and for goodness sake, use all the pieces. Because that's why they put them in there. They don't give you extra pieces. Not usually. Think about it. That's what Jesus means when he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become for my people the cornerstone. There comes a point in everybody's life when you have to realize you've been building your life without the most important piece. Right? You got to at some point realize I've been trying to deal with my guilt without Jesus. I've been trying to deal with my shame without Jesus. I've been trying to deal with my sense of meaning and purpose in life without Jesus. And it has not worked. And let me tell you, the more you know about how guilty you really are, the more you'll realize it won't work. You will never dig yourself out of the mountain of guilt that's over you. And I won't either. The only way to correct the course is to break that thing down and put Jesus where he belongs. The cornerstone. You don't have to know much about architecture to understand what he's trying to say, right? The most important piece is what cornerstone means. You put it down first, everything else gets built around it. Those who say this is marvelous in our eyes are the very ones who say, Jesus, you're my cornerstone. And those are the ones to whom God gives, not, uh, they don't earn it, God gives them the vineyard as a gift of grace. And you see, that is the genius of Christianity. That's the heart and soul of our whole faith. And I want you to hear it. If you don't hear anything else I said, hear this. These scribes, these elders, these chief priests had lived as if religion were about their own works and about their own selfish motives. And they had absolutely failed in every sense of the word. They had made themselves worse. And let me tell you, man-made religion won't make you better, it'll make you worse. You'll look better, maybe, to some people, but you'll be worse inside. And God will know it, and probably you'll know it too, because you'll be miserable, as they were. But if our religion is based on receiving a gift of grace, on a king who would be willing to come and first serve his enemies, think about those words of God. Oh, there is my beloved son. I'll send him. If you get a hold of that, and that gets a hold of you, that's, di- that's different, right? Um, the, the, the Pharisees and scribes couldn't even compete with this. Uh, their obedience to God was mostly just outward, and it was mostly just forced. Uh, they were doing things they thought they had to do, but they didn't really want to do them. But when somebody realizes God sent his only son for me, willing to have him killed... When you understand grace, suddenly new things start to happen in your heart. I want to do what God wants me to do. 
I want to be a good steward because I recognize that's what I am. I'm a steward. And every part of my life is a gift of grace, including and especially my salvation and the life that I have, the forgiveness that I have, the cleansing that I have in Jesus. It's not that this was a new thing Jesus was teaching them. I believe the, the, the scribes, the elders, and the priests ought to have known this because the Old Testament teaches this too, by the way. This is not some new thing. But the point is, every single one of us left to ourselves would twist everything about religion to make it that. We're addicted to works. We're addicted to self-seeking. We're addicted to self-righteousness. It is only by seeing the Son... Die for me, that we begin to respect the Son as the cornerstone, which leads to the gift of the vineyard. Amen? What a blessing. Jesus comes with authority. That authority is kind of scary, but that authority is gracious. Gracious.